0: Well, as was uh, in the song, uh, we are in Isaiah. Uh, So Isaiah, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Uh, Some of you may notice that I'm not wearing glasses after 34 years of wearing them. Um, I had... uh, cataract surgery this week, and so I, I will be getting glasses back in a little over a month. My readers will be built into those, uh, but this morning I'll have to go back and forth with, uh, with readers' glasses. Uh, I just warn you, uh, those of you who are sometimes drifting off in the back, I've never been able to actually see you, but now. <laughs> Now I might just like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, so just, just a just fair, just fair warning, you know, that I'm a, a, a lot sharper now at a distance. Um, with, that, uh, with that said, let's uh, stand together. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do ask that you would preserve us in this Advent season. Preserve us, O God, for it is in you that we take refuge we say to you as our Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Lord, we ask that you would preserve us in the midst of the trials that come our way and it does seem to us in our experience the trials that arrive in the Christmas season, in the Advent season, almost seem especially ill-timed and land on us with a little extra weight. And we have people in our congregation who have trials arriving in this Advent season. May you preserve them May you enable them to take refuge in you. Lord, we gather together as your people. David held your people to be the saints, the excellent ones. And he delighted to be among them. May we delight to be among each other as we worship together, as we sing together. Lord, may we look out and see the sorrows of those who run after other gods, who hope in the blessings of political oppression, the blessings of ideological oppression, Lord, we see that they are completely misguided and off the path. Lord, you are a God who gives yourself to people as their God, as their father. You are our chosen portion. You are our cup. You are our lot. And for most of our lives, it's plain that the lines of our lives, the circumstances that you have placed around us, are pleasant. Our health is usually good. We rarely go hungry. You have caused our lines to fall, indeed, in pleasant places. Enable us, O Lord, especially in this season, to set you before ourselves and to understand that you are with us in all of life, in all of our trials. May we be comforted, may we be kept, may we be glad to know you. May we be able to say with David, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Lord, as your people, we can say with David, you have made known to us the path of life. And in your presence, we find fullness of joy. And at your right hand, we will indeed find pleasures forevermore. We claim these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Isaiah is generally considered to be the greatest of the prophets, so it is particularly appropriate that the reading in Advent season that comes under the little rubric prophecy candle uh, would come from a text in Isaiah. For Isaiah is to the rest of the prophets what names like Babe Ruth or Henry Aaron are to baseball. Uh, they are simply the elite of the elite, and that is the position of scholars. Uh, As to the Hebrew Bible with the place of Isaiah among the rest of the prophets, he is the greatest among them. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, warned us about despising prophetic words because they're old. Remember in Matthew 5:17 he said don't think that i came to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them that is jesus says don't despise words simply because they're old and don't despise the old covenant simply because the author of the new covenant has arrived because my arrival did not make the words of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Micah yesterday's news. They did not render, my coming did not render the words of Moses obsolete, nothing like that. In fact, my coming and my words and my ministry are unbreakably tied to those previous words and tied to them under the rubric of fulfillment. And we'll get to see that in very, very vivid terms here in Isaiah 9, uh, 1-7. to The context in which Isaiah 9 was written, was bleak in Israel. You wouldn't be able to say of Isaiah's day what Dickens said in contrasting London with Paris in the opening lines of A Tale of Two Cities, right? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. In Isaiah's day, you would only be able to say, and he would have only been able to say, it was the worst of times, period. It was the worst of times, period. The Assyrians had swept down into the northern ten tribes of Israel, murdered many Dragged most of the rest of those people off into exile, especially, especially Isaiah focuses attention of what happened up and around the Sea of Galilee, uh, both coasts of it, the west coast of Galilee, and the east coast of Galilee, which he referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. Particularly bleak where, of course, the Assyrians would have been especially interested in all the fresh water around there, and so you were particularly in trouble if you lived in pieces of the land that they were most Interested in having and controlling and turning over to the favorites within their regime. And so that's what's going on when Isaiah writes these words. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now there's a great deal tacked into the seven verses that we'll look at today, and so some of it will end up having to just sort of skim over the top of. But I've I've stated our thesis for this morning this way. There is great hope in the world through the birth of Jesus. That's what Isaiah prophesies in a nutshell. There is going to be great hope for the world because of this child that's to be born. Because of this son who is given. And as I say, he says that to them when they are neck deep in the worst of times. Neck deep. Well, look at this from three angles. Number one, we have a hopeful word for the worst times. We have a hopeful word for the worst times. The opening line there. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, As we've noted, at the, at the moment of Isaiah's writing, all they've got is gloom. Uh, deep gloom. Humiliating gloom. Desperate gloom. Almost all the families have somebody who's been murdered. Most of the families have been taken somewhere else and exiled. And a few Israelites are left scattered back to where the Assyrian empire has resettled other people in their lands, in their homes, in their places. It's a time in which, to use that little title from Margaret Mitchell talking about the days of the South and the Civil War, Israelite civilization around the Sea of Galilee is gone with the wind. It's just gone. What used to be normal simply doesn't exist anymore. And Isaiah Writes to them about a future in which all of the gloom will be gone. Matthew quotes Isaiah 9, Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So Matthew's telling us, this is the very geography that Isaiah was talking about. And then he goes on to make that explicit. Now here's where he starts referring to Isaiah's words. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Matthew's simply pointing out, don't miss this. The ministry of Jesus was precisely where Isaiah prophesied this child would have his impact. Right around the Sea of Galilee, which is, as we've seen in our study in Mark's gospel, where most of Jesus' ministry takes place. Galilee of the Gentiles. Well, that's on the east side of the lake where he fed 4,000 mostly Gentile people, where Jesus cast demons out of a man into a whole herd of hogs, and they ran down an embankment and drowned. All of that happened in Galilee of the Gentiles, the very place seven-plus centuries earlier where Isaiah said it would happen. However, in the first century, when those things were being fulfilled, you can excuse the Jewish population just a little bit if they weren't so sure that it was obvious that Jesus was the fulfillment of Matthew's words. After all, the opening words that we read this morning were these. But there will be no gloom for for her who was in anguish. Now it's true. By Jesus' day, the Assyrians are long gone. Uh, uh, And and since the Assyrians have been gone, uh, the Babylonians have spent some time crushing the Israelites, and the Persians have spent some time crushing the Israelites, and the Greeks have spent some time crushing the Israelites. And now it's the turn of the Roman Empire. And they have been spending centuries already, a couple of centuries, crushing the Israelites. And so it was not at all obvious that all gloom had been Removed. Because the thought was, the popular thought was, when Messiah comes, all gloom will be removed by political oppression being kicked to the curb by the Messiah. Well, some demons got kicked to the curb. Some diseases got kicked to the curb. But the Roman Empire... It's right in place. And it would seem to anybody living in the first century that there is plenty of gloom about. If you're living in Israel this time, if you're living in Ukraine at this time, especially, Many other places as well, but those two are prominently in the news. It would be evident to you there's plenty of gloom, plenty of trouble, plenty of difficulty. When you zero down into the level of individual lives, there's always plenty of gloom, plenty of trouble, plenty of difficulty. So what in the world is Isaiah talking about and how are you would interpret this in the light of the New Testament? And as we've said many, many times, the idea is you have to read the New Testament. You can't make any sense out of it without the concept of, especially as it relates to the Messiah, what's already accomplished and what's not yet accomplished. What's already in place but also what's not yet in place. And Jesus has brought, even as he arrives, lives his life, goes to the cross, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven. He has pronounced doom on the gloom. In other words, for the people of God, there is a history purchased in the bag, in the bank, where gloom will be no more. But that is not the case at the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That will be the case. That will be the case at the consummation of the kingdom of God at the end of the age. Secondly, we have a hopeful word for dark times. This is where all the details and the bulk of the passage is. For the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be turned into fuel. Some of the translations have, and the people who walk in darkness shall see a great light. The ESV translated the Hebrew much more literally. Literally. Um, but in need of explanation, the people walking in darkness have seen great light. You say, well, but this was written to the people of Israel in Isaiah's day and the great light is the coming of the Messiah. They never saw him. That's true. That's true. Uh, that is the Hebrew expression there, is what is referred to by the grammarians as a prophetic perfect. Um, you stated in the past tense because it is so certain to arrive in the future that it's, it's just in the bank. It's in the bag. It's already done. The people walking in darkness, they have seen a great light. Well, literally, they haven't yet but they're certain to see it. This is going to happen because God is going to do it. It's absolutely going to do it. Now, they're walking in darkness in the sense that the Assyrians are crushing them. And as far as they can see, there's no end to that in sight. That's that's darkness. That's darkness. He goes on to speak of deep darkness. Deep darkness. The Hebrew there is the same little word used in that famous statement from Psalm 23. In Psalm 23 the Hebrew term is translated shadow of death shadow of death. Here the ESV translates it, deep darkness, but it's exactly, it's exactly the same Hebrew term. Uh, uh, Borrowing the Psalm 23 translation, it would read this way, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death a light is going to shine on them now there's plenty of evidence that we we live in a dark place in a dark land uh, even e- even in you know prosperous relatively safe america i don't know if you saw that news story wall street journal ran a a big piece on the uh, company uh, meta and internal documents surfaced, you know, that meta, which formerly just known as Facebook, and the Facebook element in particular, that that they they had inside information to the algorithms that they were running would be, and they knew would be, and were being tremendously detrimental to teenagers, and particularly detrimental To teenage girls. They knew it. It was in the data. It was plain. They knew it. And they did it anyway, for a little extra money. All the while, virtue signaling in every direction that they can think of. That's dark. That is really dark. That's where we live. That's where we live. Uh, Again, if you're in Ukraine, you're living in Israel, living in the Gaza Strip, it's dark, it's dangerous, it's difficult. Um, This darkness. He goes on and says, well, you multiply the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You multiply the nation. If you think about this prophecy of Isaiah in his time frame, most hearing in would say, you know, the great days will come, well, there'll be a All of a sudden, a couple of million Israelites will really be prosperous and they'll be in a good spot, and that will be fantastic. But Isaiah was speaking well beyond that. You've multiplied the nation. The nation becomes the seed of Abraham. The nation, as we understand it, post the coming of the Messiah, has something over 100 million Chinese people who would consider themselves now to be children of Abraham. Tens and tens of millions of people across Africa, United States, around the world, still a relatively small number within the whole population of the planet, but an unbelievably massive number. As read out of the original context of what Isaiah said, when he said God's plan is to multiply the nation. And in the New Covenant we find out what that means. That's Abraham's offspring by the millions upon millions upon millions upon millions. And then he uses two metaphors to compare it with um, a metaphor of the farmer and a military metaphor. My first church was uh, uh, all all farmers when I when I first got there in, in, in Northwest Iowa, and uh, and most of them of roughly a Scandinavian uh, d- descent, some some Danes, some Swedes, some Norwegians, some some Germans mixed in with uh, uh, w- with the group, and. Um, um, and, and there you, you, you had to learn code language for what, what rejoicing in the harvest looks like and sounds like. Because these are subdued people. These are subdued people. Uh, but I think of a few years a, a very good friend of mine also named Anderson, my friend Gordy Anderson. I, I talk to him regularly still after 30 some years and we will usually talk shortly after the harvest. And I'll ask him. I'll ask him. So, how was the harvest? And on an average year, uh, he will make you think that maybe you should send him some money uh, because it's uh, it's 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 looking really bleak. But if if he says this, if he says this, well, I can't complain. That means he's rejoicing in the harvest. It was unbelievable. Uh, Well, in other words, well, I don't really want to tell you how good it was, so I'll just say, I can't complain. That's what he's talking about. In other words, as he uses that phrase, he knows that I understand. It was magnificent. Like, whoa, whoa. That's the idea here. Magnificent harvest, joyful event. The military metaphor, the war is over, property's been confiscated, the conquering nation is much richer and they are rejoicing. And he simply says that's the experience of the people God, he goes on, and the yoke of the burden of the staff on his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as in the days of Midian. Uh, In other words, this child is going to eventually have a massive impact that just affects the whole world from top to bottom from beginning to end. And that's all wrapped up in that little phrase, as in the days of Midian. Because that, that, that's just code language for turning your Bible to Judges chapter 6 and reread the story of Gideon where uncountable numbers of Midianites are in the valley having basically taken over Israel And Israel is doomed. And God intervenes. And Gideon runs down the mountainside with 300 men against that force. And defeats them. And Isaiah is saying, this child that I'm about to be talking about, This will be his impact on reality. If you look small, look like a mismatch, look like nothing really great could come out of it, but something great will come out of it. And then he he says, and every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and garment rolled in blood will be turned to fuel for the fire. Fuel for the fire. Every boot of the trampling warrior and every battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood. That, that's all images for no more war, no more trouble, no more, no more, no more Ukraines, no more attacks by Hamas, no more stuff like that. Going on anywhere in the world, all gone. Now, that wasn't true when Jesus got there. The Roman Empire was still there, and there have been countless wars since. This is, again, this whole already not yet thing. But the coming of Christ, the coming of Christ guarantees there is going to be this new heaven and this new earth. Uh, it's coming. It's certain to take place. It's about, it's arriving and has already arrived from our perspective in the person of Jesus. Thirdly, we have a hopeful child of everlasting significance. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, the, the Hebrew text fronts the thing, uh, the word for child, or, whereas ESV has, for to us a child is born, the Hebrew text has, for a child has been born to us. Emphasizing, emphasizing the child. Uh, bracketed in, in in Isaiah's prophecy, the me- first mention of this child was all the way back in chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, Um, you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. A child will be born, and he will be the wonderful counselor. In Advent season, we're reminded, we know where the ultimate source of wisdom is in the world. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. When progressives say, you know, well, you don't want to be running your lives on words that are 2,000 years old. The truth is, according to the gospel, is there there are no wiser words on the way than the words spoken and endorsed by and rested in by Jesus. There's no greater wisdom coming, ever, ever. Not now, not next year, not a century ago, ever. He's the wonderful counselor. You guide your life by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are guiding your life in the wisest way that you possibly could. And he backs that wisdom with almightiness. He is Mighty God. He's mighty God. Worship team this morning read John 1. 1 to 5. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was mighty God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not one thing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men light shone in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He's a mighty God. He's everlasting. He's the everlasting Father. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The increase of the government of peace, there will be no end. A couple weeks back, we celebrated, or remembered, it's not really a celebration, but we remembered the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, November 22nd, 1963. It was a Friday. And he was followed by Lyndon Johnson, who was followed by Richard Nixon, who was followed by Gerald Ford, who was followed by Jimmy Carter, who was followed by Ronald Reagan, who was followed by George Bush, who was followed by Bill Clinton, who was followed by the younger George Bush who was followed by Barack Obama, who was followed by Donald Trump, who was followed by Joe Biden. Notice the pattern. Coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, on the stage, disappearing from the stage, on the stage, disappearing from the stage. Now, Jesus of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. It's eschatological language, again. It's, it, it, it's in the bag. It's in the bag. So well, it's not here yet, but it's certain. It's in the bag. It's coming. It's coming. I have a December birthday early on in December, relatively speaking, always in the second week. No matter how December arrives, I'm somewhere in the second week of November or December. When I was a little kid, uh, my mom would lament and she would say to me, She'd say to me, You know, it's too bad. It's tough to have a December birthday because, you know, it's too close to Christmas. So nobody really wants to come to your party. Um, Because they're already too busy. You know, and my attitude at seven years old was, you and dad buy me a present, grandma and grandpa each buy me a present, I'm good to go, don't need the party. Uh, But when she would say that, my actual thought in my my five-year-old brain, my six-year-old brain, my seven-year-old brain, was this, like, What in the world are you talking about, Mom? My birthday is nowhere near Christmas. (laughs) I mean, there's my birthday, and then it's like you crossed a Sahara desert of time before you arrive at Christmas. That's how it felt when I was seven years old. I did not feel at all like my birthday was pushed up against Christmas. Far from it. Well, but of course now I know. Um, My mother was right. I mean, when you enter the month of December, the next thing you know, you're somewhere deep into January before you even turn around. Well, that's what this language is doing. That's, That's how... This is how eschatological language is supposed to work in the Old Testament. The child that has come, before you know it in the whole scheme of reality, you'll find yourself in the new heaven and the new earth, what a seven-year-old considers to be Christmas Day. You'll find yourself and the new heaven and the new earth. And the increase of his government will have no end. It'll simply be there and and that's it. And that's true for you if you fit into this group of people that Isaiah is talking about when he says, a child will be born to us. Who's this us? Well, Paul Paul tells us who the us is this way. Ephesians 1, 4 and following. Even as he chose us to be in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Us. Are you there? Are you in Christ this Advent season? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, gloom is a limited time engagement for you. However gloomy the moment is, the gloom will not last. It will not last. And your most joyful moment. The best days you've ever had. Better days than those. Are in the bag for you. And they're coming your way. Rapidly. And when they arrive. Ultimately they will then. Never leave. Never leave. And this is because God has done it. This child that comes, Isaiah closes off, well, why did all that happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts Has done this, has sent this child for us and saved us, guaranteed us a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we are. And that's where we're headed. Many reasons to rejoice regardless of what other things are going on and a lot of negative things may be going on. The zeal of the Lord of hosts has done amazing things for you if you are in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. I ask that you would enable us to hear your voice, to become enamored with what you have done for us, who you have made us to be in Christ. And may you fill our hearts with joy and hope and stability in this season as we reflect on this child that is born to us, the Son who is given to us. With the new heavens and the new earth spread out before him, already purchased through his death, resurrection, ascension. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.